We are in lesson one in our study of the book of Ruth. I have to say that this morning brings back several memories for me. One of them uh, is the memory that was caused by that rest before at the beginning of our song. I used to go to a church many years ago, and, and I was sitting in front with a friend who wasn't known for singing on key. And, and uh, it was the song, uh, God of Our Fathers. And it goes, dun, 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 you know, and you get this whole thing before you sing. He started on the first beat, off key. And the microphone for the radio broadcast was right in front of us. And I just wanted to just kind of sink low. So I, would, I have to admit, I was apprehensive this morning when we had to rest there for, for one beat. I wasn't sure how that would go. The other memory is, is years ago uh, in our old building when we had, remember, the, the, uh, one of the Sunday school classes that milt, met up in the balcony. And uh, Tom Wright was teaching on the book of Ruth. And and I had read and and studied the book of Ruth some, but I'd not really thought a lot about it. And 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 people were sort of struggling with Naomi and trying to figure out what to make of this girl. And all of a sudden, it just came over me, and I yelled out, "What a witch!" And and man, I thought everybody's going to fall out of their chair. But it just suddenly struck me how bad she was. Uh, and in fact, when you think about our, our study this morning, or, or our topic this morning, where we were talking about joy, and, and people were talking about, you know, examples of it and whatever, this woman is the antithesis. If her name was Joy, and it could well have been, it was actually the word pleasant, and she said, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. If her name was Joy, she would have said, don't call me Joy, call me Joyless. And she was. She was a bitter old lady. And and I'm amazed that Ruth would stick it out with her. I don't know how you divorce your mother-in-law, but I'll tell you what. It would be tempting in that case. And so we have come to it again. And I have to say that in general terms... I haven't really changed my mind about her. Uh, as you know me and you know my dealings with certain people who aren't too saintly, she would have been the perfect wife for Jonah. They would have been this great couple. They could have been in misery together, both helping each other along. But this really is a, a great breath of fresh air when you think about our text and you realize that this is during the period of the Judges. And here we have just come out of this incident at Gibeah. What a horrible story of perversion and, and of violence and, 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 and of just deceit and all of the things that go on. And all of a sudden, in the midst of these dark days, here is this bright light, not Naomi, but Ruth and Boaz. What a beautiful story. And, and I don't know how anybody would ever stop with the book of Judges without doing Ruth. Because it finally leaves that sweet taste in your mouth that you've been yearning for after all of the, the, the terrible things that have come to us from the, uh, the book of Judges. But let's talk for a minute about the, uh, the Moabites. 
And, and it seems to me this is a, a really key element that I'm going to come back to in a moment. But when we realize that all of this takes place in the context of Moab, Ruth is a Moabitess. Uh, the, the family leaves and goes to sojourn in Moab, and they're going to leave Moab now to come back to uh, Bethlehem. So it would be good to remind ourselves uh, a, a little bit about this group of people called Moabites. Their origin comes to us, you remember, in Genesis chapter 19. Interestingly, right after Sodom and Gomorrah. So here we are. Sodom and Gomorrah is the parallel for what we've seen in Judges chapter 19, taking place at Gibeah. And this event now comes uh, to pass after Sodom and Gomorrah. And as a result of Sodom and Gomorrah, you remember, Lot no longer has a wife. She has been turned to Morton Salt. And now he has two daughters. And those two daughters look at their circumstances. They're living in a cave. And the oldest daughter, from whom will come Moab, the oldest daughter says, you know, we're in a whole lot of trouble because uh, we don't really have any way of continuing our line. And you remember what happens. They go through this process, which isn't so very different in kind than what you see in Genesis or in Judges chapter 21 of how we're going to get uh, an offspring for our father. And so they get the father drunk. The, the offspring of the oldest is named Moab. And the next night, they get the father drunk again, and the offspring of the youngest daughter is called Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites. I was thinking about that when I was in, uh, in Jakarta a few years ago. I met a man named Nate Mirza, lovely, lovely guy who's with the Navigators. First time I met him was in a hotel, and I had no idea who he was or what he did. And he comes, he was a very friendly guy, and he shakes hands and he says, My name is Nate Mirza. I'm an Assyrian. Not Assyrian, he says. An Assyrian. And we don't have a very good reputation in the Bible. And I said to him, Neither do we. (laughs) But when you look at this, if, if he were a Moabite, you know, he would have said, We don't have a very good reputation in the Bible. Moabites weren't the cream of the crop from an Israelite point of view. And it started there at their beginnings, but it goes on. You remember then in Numbers 22 through 24, when the Israelites have left the land of Egypt and they are moving toward the land of promise, they come around to the eastern side of the Dead Sea and they will go up and they will pass through Moab. And the Moabites were afraid and the Moabite king's name was Balak. Balak is the one who hires Balaam to come and to pronounce a curse on Israel so that the Israelites wouldn't overrun them and overtake them. And, and, uh, and then when you come to the next chapter in that series, chapter 25, you remember the way in which Balaam finally ends up bringing about disaster for the Israelites is to bring in the Moabite girlies. And the Moabite girlies seduce the Israelite men. And that's where you have that whole terrible incident. So again, it's not exactly a beautiful story. And you will remember in, in, uh, in Deuteronomy, it is said that the Moabites were not to enter into the assembly for 10 generations. 
So the Moabites are, are not, in, 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 in Israelite eyes, they are not the cream of the crop. Oh, I forgot one, didn't I? Eglon, in the book of Judges chapter 3. Eglon is the Moabite king whom Israel serves for 18 years. So even in recent times, Moab and the Moabites are, are not exactly uh, fondly thought of. Okay, let's take a look then at the, at the story for a moment and, and just walk our way through it. You remember that there is a famine that comes in Israel, and as a result of that famine, a man named Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons, and they go over to Moab, which must not have been affected by the famine, and uh, they decide to, to sojourn there. It seems fairly evident from the text that they did not plan to become permanent residents, but they were going to go there and weather the, the famine storm, as it were, somewhat like Abraham went down to Egypt uh, during the time of the famine to avoid the, the difficulties there. Elimelech then dies in Moab, and that leaves uh, Naomi and her two sons. It is on her watch, as I read the story, it is on her watch that her sons marry Moabite women. And if she's thinking like she is in our text, she's saying, look, better to have sons, sons than no sons, children, grandchildren, than no grandchildren at all. And so these two sons marry their Moabite wives. They live there for 10 years, and you know that those Moabite husbands now pass away. And so all we have left is Naomi and Orpah and Ruth, the two Moabite wives, no children, no grandchildren, and no heirs. And so it looks very much like things are in, in real trouble so far as the continuation of that, uh, of, of his uh, clan. And, and so it's bad news. And then you have the, uh, and that really is, is spelled out in verse 5, where it just basically says, I call that home alone to play off of the movie, because now it's just she and those two girls, and, and all hope apparently in her mind is gone. That's when she hears the story that bread is in Bethlehem. Now, I have to tell you, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. Isn't it interesting? The house of bread is the place that has the famine. No bread in the house of bread. And now she hears that the house of bread is full. The bakery has been doing good stuff in Bethlehem. And so now she thinks this is the time to go back. And they actually are on their way. The two daughters-in-law are in tow. And they are on their way, making their way back. And I suppose they would go up, cross the Jordan, and then make their way up past Jericho and on up until eventually they would, they would get to uh, Bethlehem. But they are on their way when Naomi begins to make this appeal. And, and it seems to me that Naomi's beginning to run these things through her mind and she's saying, now let's just think about what it's going to look like if I show up back at home with two Moabite daughters-in-law. And so she begins to try to persuade those uh, women to go back home. Her first effort we see in verses 8 through 10, and it doesn't work. Both women decide to stay. By the way, if this were a movie, it would be a chick flick. Do you notice two times they wept bitterly? 
man, the men would just get, they'd just get over this. But these gals are just boo-hooing it up and, and whatever. I mean, that's what the text says. And, and, uh, and so anyway, they, they, they have a good cry, but they still stay with her. Then you have the second effort, and that's when uh, Naomi is going to intensify uh, her argument as to why it won't be profitable for them to accompany her. And as a result of that, Orpah leaves. And that prompts Naomi now to say to Ruth, you ought to do what your sister-in-law has done. You should leave too. And that's when you have that beautiful response of Ruth that basically says, no way. You're stuck with me forever. I'm going to cling to you like glue. And, and you know that she does. We'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. But that's her final effort. And finally, Naomi gives up and they make their way to Bethlehem. And then there are those final verses where it's Bethlehem's response to the arrival of Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And, and the focus here in our text in chapter 1 is on Naomi. I get the impression as I read this text when they say, is this Naomi? Now, granted, we all know that in 10 years things change <laughs> about us. And generally not favorably so. And certainly at my age, it's not favorable, I'll tell you that. And, and so people are looking, sizing you up, thinking, hmm, put a few pounds on. Wow, he's got some wrinkles to him, too. And, and I don't know what it is, but, but it seems to me that added to that, whatever physiological things are going on, and by the way, she's making it clear to her daughters-in-law, it's too late for me to have kids. So she's telling them, I'm over the hill. It's over with me. But there's beyond that, there is that bitter spirit that 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 when they look at her, they they do a second take because they're saying, "Wow, is I mean, what's happened to her?" Is the sense I get as as I read that, and that's where she says, "Don't you call me Naomi? Don't you call me pleasant? You call me bitter." And boy, she is, she is, and she's saying, and it's all God's fault. He's on my case. And God's make my life misery. So that's the, the story in a nutshell. Let me make some observations. So far as I can tell, there's no clear link in Ruth to a particular place or time. Well, there is a place, Bethlehem. But there's no link to a particular period in the book of Judges. So I can't go and say it's this point in the book of Judges where this whole thing with Ruth comes it is interesting, however, that Bethlehem does occur uh, a couple of times in, in the uh, book of Judges. But I can't find a particular place. And in my mind, it's speculative to make much of an effort to do so. So it's during the period of the Judges, exactly when in that period, uh, I don't know. And then the other thing that I notice is there's no statement that, that they're in a caravan. In other words, the impression I get is that Elimelech takes his family... But but nothing is said of anyone else. Now, that doesn't mean other people didn't go. But from the standpoint of our author and the impression he wants to give, he's just focusing on this little family. The other thing you notice is when they decide to come back, I should say when Naomi decides to come back, and they, they return to Bethlehem, everybody's there. In other words, the impression you get is she left, they left, 
Everybody else stayed, and when she comes back, there's everybody, and they're saying, you know, wow, what happened to Naomi? But you don't get the impression there's this huge migration of people. So that leads me to observe that when I see these people, and in particular when I see Boaz coming onto the scene, it seems to me that the people who stayed must not have done too badly. Or to put it differently, the people who stayed did better than Naomi, Elimelech, and her two sons. Would you not agree? I mean, they were still alive. Naomi's husband and sons weren't. And, and, uh, they were, were, uh, so far as we can see with Boaz, he's a prosperous man. So <clears throat> I get the impression that things went reasonably well in their absence. And, and that makes me wonder, you know, wouldn't it have been better for them to stay? Uh, and, and I think that leads me in light of Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus chapter 26 to say that the things that happened to Naomi and her family were divine discipline. In in other words, that wasn't just bad luck. Uh, Famine, God said, when, when he gave the law to his people, famine was an evidence that God's people were disobedient. And would you not say from the book of Judges that would be a fairly easy assumption to make? Things weren't going well spiritually in Israel at that time. Why would we be shocked by a famine? Things were not going spiritually well and, and, and so men died. Why would we be surprised? In other words, I don't think that just happened. I think it happened because of sin. And the sad part of this is that when Naomi lays this off on God, she doesn't assume any responsibility at all for the fact that there may be disobedience on her part. Now, she didn't lead them to go to Moab, but it seems to me that she didn't fight the boys marrying Moabite wives either. And, and so, it, to me, that, that just seems to be confirmation that there's some discipline. The other thing is, when you look at chapter 4 of Ruth... It clearly says that God opened Ruth's womb to be able to bear a child. In other words, not only was there death and not only was there uh, all this this difficulty, there was also barrenness that came about and that God sealed those women's wombs so there would be no half-Israelite children, but that there would be an heir that would come, of course, eventually, uh, through Ruth and through Boaz. Moab is not the place of blessing, so far as I can tell, ever. And and so it's not the place to be. There's too much emphasis here on marriage and family. Now, I know in our culture, in our world, <laughs> it's kind of moving the other way. People aren't getting married anymore and they're not having kids. There's something wrong with that, i got to tell you. But that's another story. Here, there is an overemphasis because what I see uh, Naomi f- focusing on is the physical. She somehow sees success in life, peace, contentment, and security in a husband and in children. And I got to tell you, that just isn't right. Our peace and security comes in God alone. Now, it's a wonderful blessing. But she sees that too much. So you got husband, children, and bread are the dominant forces. And when she starts talking about blessing for these gals, that's the blessing she's looking for, is the blessings of marriage and children. And you're saying, 
somehow that just feels a little bit distorted to me. Now let's talk about some contrasts that take place. There is the contrast, first of all, between Ruth and Orpah. You notice in this sequence of events that Orpah is uh, is following along with Naomi and Ruth on the way back to Bethlehem, and then eventually she's persuaded to change her mind. But both set out. Initially, both refuse to leave Naomi. Naomi's argument doesn't prevail. But eventually, when Naomi gets more specific in her argument, Orpah says to herself, Boy, I have so much trouble not saying Oprah. I just, I know I'm going to say it, so I'll say it right now. And then it's all over with, I hope. But Orpah says to herself, in effect, you know what? Naomi's right. I mean, it seems to me you have to conclude that. That when Orpah leaves, Orpah agrees with Naomi. And I'm telling you folks, Naomi's wrong. And if Naomi's wrong, then Orpah's wrong. And, and, and her thought is, it is for my best interest to forsake Naomi, to not go to Israel, to not go and identify with Israel's God, but to go home and find a good husband and have kids. That's where it'll really be. And don't you wonder what happened to Orpah? I mean, wouldn't it be interesting just to do a little follow-up and find out? But i got to tell you, she made the wrong choice. And it seems to me that when you have these two women side by side, you see one woman who says, I'm sticking to you and I'm not leaving. And you see the other one who says, you know, I think you're right. I think the best thing for me would be to go back home and just get back into where I was and what I was doing. Sad, but a contrast. Then there's Ruth and uh, Naomi. And you see these three efforts, and I guess I just want to contrast our way through those three arguments that Naomi makes to get these girls, these young women, to go home. In verse 9, it's a very general thing. She basically says, may God bless you with security through a new, and, and it's interesting how the translations do that, because literally the text says, May God bless you with a husband. But a number of the translations, a couple of translations say with a new husband. Well, well I mean, in one sense, it's pretty obvious. The old ones are dead. They're going to be new. And, and, and then it says in some translations, another husband. But I guess what I would say is if you want to put parenthesis around something, I would say, may God, the God of Israel, bless you with a Moabite husband. Isn't that really what she's saying? Not just another husband. If you're sending him back to Moab and not bringing him with you to Israel, what, what kind of a husband do you think you're going to get? You're going to get a Moabite husband. And Naomi says, that will be God's blessing. Why? Because now you have security. Better than a social security check. And you've got kids to watch out and take care of you. That's all she's thinking about. Man, that's wrong. And, and, and so anyway, you see, uh, Oprah, uh, there it goes. Orpah and Naomi, uh, both see the fallacy in that and they are not persuaded by that initial argument. That's when you come to the more specific argument. And now what she's spelling out for them is, let me tell you, if it's all about marriage and it's all about grandchildren, which for, uh, for Naomi, it was. 
then how's that going to happen? <laughs> That's the question. So, all right, you got Naomi. She's at this point an old lady, at least too old to be on the list of, of childbearers. So she's saying, I'm too old to marry, too old to have children. So it ain't going to happen with me, right? You're not going to get husbands with me. So if you stay with me and having a husband is your priority, you're in trouble. Because I haven't got any and I'm not going to get any. Now, she says, even if I were, even if somehow by some great miracle I were a Sarah, are you gals going to hang around 20 years waiting for that husband? Then you won't be able to have kids. So what she's saying is, just take a look. Physically, it's impossible. If the goal is to marry and have children, then it isn't going to work. It's impossible. I love it. I love it. I want her to shout impossible as loud as she can. It's just like Israel at the Red Sea. Egyptians coming from behind, the Red Sea out in front, and everybody says, no way, right? And God says, my way. That's, that's the way that God works. He brings you to this spot where you're absolutely stuck. And so I love Naomi's argument in one sense because humanly she's right. Humanly, there is no way. But God has a way. And he's going to make that stick. But Orpah buys the logic and now she returns home and says, yep, you're right. I got to get me one of those Moabite husbands and some of those Moabite grandkids because that's where security and my significance is. That brings us to the third argument. And here's here's where... Uh, Naomi really lets me down. I mean, she's been well on her way, but she really lets me down here. She says to, to Ruth, your sister-in-law has made a wise choice. She's gone back. She's taken my advice. If you were smart, you would do what she did. You would go back to your people and you would go back to your gods. Now, here's where it just doesn't fit, folks. How is God going to bless you worshiping pagan gods? I, 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 granted, okay, so she uses the word Yahweh. Doesn't cut it with me. People can use the right word for God and have the wrong theology. It, it, just, it just drives me nuts to read this because she, she's just totally off uh, frequency, as it were, with where God is going and what God has said. I want to come back to that in, in a moment. But this is where you see the response of Ruth that we all love. One, I am sticking with you. Give up trying to turn me back. I'm not going back. I am with you, period. And finally, it's Naomi that gets the point. Not Ruth. It's, it's Ruth that persuades Naomi. I'm staying. You can waste your breath if you want. It isn't going to move me to go back to my people. I will remain with you. I will become a part of your people. Your people will be my people. Now, the thing I think you really need to see in this is she's not talking about a temporary arrangement. She's not just saying, I'm concerned about who is going to take care of you. So I'll be a sojourner in Israel. I'll, I'll, I'll just get my green card and I'll get a job and I'll take care of you until you're dead. Then I'm going back to Moab. Get me that husband and those kids. She doesn't say that. 
She said, when you die, I'm staying because I'm going to die here too. I not only embrace the people, I embrace the place. I will be buried where you are buried. And so you see that full identification, not a temporary commitment, not just as long as she lives. She is going to embrace the God of Israel. She is going to embrace the people of Israel. She is going to embrace the land of Israel. She's made her choice. And, and that's why we love it. What a great statement that is. Now let's talk about some things that I think are important. Now we're going to get to the key I'm going to save it till last because I like the Alfred Hitchcock approach. I want to get to the key to understanding the book of Ruth. If we don't get this, I think we're going to go down the wrong path and we'll come up with some wrong conclusions. I have to say that that uh, a couple of uh, texts in Proverbs came to mind, and, and I'll just share them with you. They're the same proverb, actually. Proverbs 14, 12 and Proverbs 16.25, and you, you won't see it on screen because I thought of this afterwards. There is a way that seems right to a person, but the end is the way that leads to death. You know, when Elimelech looked at the situation, it seemed so right. It seemed so pragmatically wise to leave the land of God, to go to Moab and just spend a little time there. But what happens? Bottom line, death. It really wasn't a good idea at all. And this is just simply an illustration of it. I said it's the worst of times, it's the best of time. You know, that's the way that the tale of two cities begins. But isn't that really true? I mean, when you look at the period of the judges from the standpoint of Ruth, would you not say that? It was the worst of times. But in the light of what God does in and through Ruth and Boaz, it is one of the most beautiful stories of all of the Old Testament. What a wonderful thing. And I guess what I'm saying is, when we come to dark times, folks, there is a way in which we're a lot like Elimelech. And we're looking for some kind of a back door, some kind of pragmatic stopgap, whatever. Something to get us by because these are just really bad times. And I think you have to say the bad times are those places where God puts us because his hand eventually, not always immediately, eventually his saving hand is prominently displayed to his glory. I see too much hope in earthly things with, with uh, Naomi and Elimelech. It, it's all about now. It's all about now. And that's, in fact, what she's saying. Time is running out. Your biological clocks are ticking. You know, you got to get this done. you got to go back and get you a husband and get those kids. And, and, and there's bread. That's what determines that I'm going back to Bethlehem is there's bread. Two much interest. And I think about that in the light of Hebrews. What does it say in Hebrews? All these people died not expecting the blessings now, but looking for those blessings as eternal blessings that are going to come. Well, Naomi didn't have that kind of faith at that point in time. 
doing what's right in your own eyes. That's the expression we left with, wasn't it? Several times in the last, in the conclusion of, of the book of Judges. And, you know, that's a great, that's a great statement in the sense of just taking it for what it was. Not, not just doing what you think is right, but doing what is right as you see it. Well, what do you see? You see what appears to be true. But isn't faith believing what God declares to be true? In other words, doesn't faith sometimes require us to act contrary to what we see? Or even with the, with the person of our Lord Jesus, Peter says, and our Lord Jesus says as well, blessed are those who don't see but believe. What they see, the writer of the Hebrews says, what they see through faith is what God has promised. And, and I just, I just see Naomi and Elimelech doing what is right in their own eyes, living by what appears to be true, rather than on the basis of what God himself has declared. The Abrahamic covenant. This is really something. Naomi turns the Abrahamic covenant on its ear. Now, what is the Abrahamic covenant about? God says to Abraham, leave your people, right? Leave your people and leave your land to a place that I'm going to show you. And then he says, those who bless, I will make you a blessing. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Naomi is saying to Ruth and Orpah, no, don't leave your country. Stay in your country. Go back to your country. Don't leave your people and identify with the people of God. Go back to your people. And she says, don't try to bless me. Leave me. Because I'm cursed. If you stick with me, you're going to share my curse. That is the Abrahamic covenant upside down and inside out. And the irony of it is that Ruth understands that covenant better than her Israelite mother-in-law. Naomi does not understand or live by the Abrahamic covenant. She's living by sight. Okay, I call this sovereignty gone south. I'll beat this drum for just a minute. Some of the most depressed people I know, some of the most unpleasant, now I'm going to be careful here, some of the most unpleasant people I know, of course that excludes all of you, are hard line on the sovereignty of God. I don't, I'm not going to stop there. They're hard line on the sovereignty of God, but they have lost sight of the grace of God and the mercy of God. There is a fatalism that is possible for those who believe God is sovereign, and, and that's what I see in, in, in Naomi. I see a woman who believes God is absolutely sovereign. In fact, it's very interesting. She uses the term El Shaddai uh, of God, and, and uh, that's, not, that's not a really common expression. You know where it's most commonly used? The book of Job. And by the way, until the end of the book of Job, that's not really a good thing. Because what Job is basically saying is, oh, God's in control, all right. And he's making my life miserable. In other words, it's, it's laying off all of your troubles onto God. But it's as though God is the one who's doing you wrong. Now, what a different thing it is to believe God is sovereign 
and gracious. Now I have a God who is in control of my life in every circumstance of my life. Romans 8, 28 through 30. He's working all things together for good for me and for his glory. That's a different story. But what I'm saying is, it is possible for people who rightly believe in the sovereignty of God to wrongly apply it. And they become the grumpiest, grouchiest people in the world. And when they believe it without joy, my friend, they are not a blessing to other people. They are not a blessing to other people. And they are not people that live their life in joy. All right, enough said. By the way, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I like the sweet kind, not the sour kind. And Naomi's just got this bad strain of sovereignty. God is bringing about our salvation when appearances would tell us otherwise. Isn't that, isn't that what this is about? When you look at Naomi's perception of what the state of her life is, I mean, it's like she's saying, look, God's dealt me a bad hand. He's just got it out for me. I'm just going back to Bethlehem and I'll just buy me a plot at Restland and they can plant me there. I mean, that's, that's just, that's just the way it is. Um, but the reality is God has a marvelous plan. He does have a seed, if you would. He has a seed in store for Naomi. He has an offspring. He will continue the line of Elimelech. But he won't do it back in Moab. He's going to do it in Bethlehem. And as you know, the outcome of this is she's going to get to be grandma of David. She's in the line, as is, is uh, Ruth. And isn't that a beautiful thing? In the midst of what looks to be our destruction, God is working out our deliverance. That's a message you and I really need to hang on to in tough times. And in my opinion, these are tough times. All right, here's the one I've been holding out on you. On Here's my Alfred Hitchcock ending. If I were to say, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the biggest Moabite of all? You know who it would be? Naomi. Naomi is the Moabite. Ruth is the Israelite. Ruth lived her life consistently with the Abrahamic covenant. She embraced the people of God. She left her people. She left her land. She embraced the people of God and the land of God. And she swore to be a blessing to grouchy old Naomi for the rest of her life. Now, I'm telling you, folks, that's something. It would be fine if she was some sweet sis that you just loved to death. She was a grouch. And she committed herself to be a blessing to this Jewish person, this Israelite. And God says, those who bless you, I will bless. Now, I'll tell you where my aha moment came. If you're, if you're still waiting for a little proof, my aha moment came this morning. Often it comes in the shower. I think it came before I hit the shower this morning. And all of a sudden, I thought about the origins of the Moabites. You have a Sodom and Gomorrah experience. Not unlike what we saw in Gibeah and Judges chapter 19, right? Now you have a situation in which it looks like the line will not continue. 
That was the danger, remember? And they're going through these gyrations in, in Judges 21, trying to figure out how to get brides for the Benjamites so they could keep the thing going. So here you have Lot. Now, it's reversed in the sense that in our story, it's the woman who survives and the husband who dies. In Lot's scenario, it's the wife who dies and the husband survives. And in, in uh, uh, Naomi's story, she has two sons. And in, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, in, in Naomi's story, she has two sons who die and two daughters-in-law. In the story with Lot, he has two daughters. And one of those daughters, the mother of Moab, one of those daughters concludes that the only way to preserve their father's seed, his line, is by immorality. Is by acting in a way that is inconsistent with God. And I say to you, suddenly it just, like a flash of light to me, I said, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what we have is a rerun of Genesis chapter 19 with Lot and his two daughters, but now it's Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. She believes that somehow in order to preserve her husband's seed, she has to have them act in a way that is contrary to God's word and God's promises. So I say to you, this is why it's key. If we do not see Naomi as a as as a Moabite at heart, and by the way, she's been living there for a while. If we don't see her as a Moabite at heart, we won't get it. If we don't see Ruth as an Israelite at heart, we won't get it. Now, I'll give you this much of a clue. When you come to Naomi's efforts to get uh, Ruth married to Boaz, I'm going to suggest to you, and I'm going to say it again later, Naomi is thinking and acting like a Moabite. You, come to, you can try all you want to come up with some pious explanation for what it means to crawl in the sleeping bag with him when he's drunk and do what he says. I got to tell you, that's pure Moabite to me. Pure Moabite. God has a better way. And God brings salvation in the darkest of days to people who trust him in spite of what their eyes see. They trust his word and they obey. That's why this book is so great. And that's why it gives us encouragement and hope in dark days. Father, we thank you for this text. Thank you so much for Ruth. We don't know where her faith came from. It certainly doesn't seem to be from the testimony of these Israelites, but perhaps she weaseled it out of them some way. How grateful we are that she decided to leave her people, to leave her land, to identify with your people and your land, and to be a blessing to her mother-in-law. Thank you, Father, that she becomes the one through whom the Messianic line is continued. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is the ultimate result of what we see in our story. Thank you for revealing to us the fact that you are not only a great and sovereign God, but you are a God who is kind. That you bring about salvation even at those points in time where your people are shaking their fists in your face. 
I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never acknowledged their sin, acknowledged the difficulties in their life as the result of sin somewhere along the line in their life or someone's all the way back to Adam's, Pray that they might acknowledge their need for a Savior and that they might see that your salvation has come through the Lord Jesus and through a miraculous birth that takes place when we trust in Him. May they do that even today in Jesus' name. Amen.